Relevant content for our members by our members. This is TMC Connect. Good afternoon, everyone. Rich Swabinski with the Mortgage Collaborative here with the rundown with Rob and Rich. Apologies for the slightly delayed start. Uh, and as always, uh, please strive for interactivity. Any questions, comments, funny anecdotes you have, feel free to incorporate them into the show today. Rob, we got to start with the, re- the Fed announcement today from Jackson Hole. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, affectionately known as Jay Powell to many, uh, really, you know, doubling down on uh, no taper, no hints of a taper. Some people were looking for that. Stocks rallied off the no hints of a taper. Um, Also really doubled down on his thoughts that inflation is really transitory and is going to return to healthy levels once things kind of get back normal. Uh, Also really doubled down on the policies that uh, the Fed has implemented over the course of the last year um, and not, you know, wanting to get back to true full employment uh, before they even think about starting to taper. Uh, anything in Jay Powell's statement today that surprised you or that you found interesting? I think it, it serves as a reminder, first of all, that A, the, the Federal Reserve is definitely a steady hand on the helm, uh, and that Jay Powell is is very responsible and very competent. The the tapered discussion, that's what I found in talking to my capital markets buddies over the last few days at the Western Secondary, the the tapered discussion, I mentioned this in my commentary today, it's it's important for people to know know, why we are even talking about tapering and what, what tapering and then this taper tantrum from what was it, eight years ago that, that occurred under Ben Bernanke. And the, the Federal Reserve, through its open market committee and through the New York Fed desk, is out there now buying billions of dollars of, of treasury and MBS security. And they started doing that with COVID back you know, last March and April because of they were afraid of the demand, demand side of the economic equation. As it turns out, the demand side of the economic equation in the United States is, is, is very, very healthy. You know, if anything, there's a backlog, there's a backlog, you know, caused by ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal and so forth. So the question has been, you know, day after day after day, gee, when are they going to stop? When are they going to taper off this, these purchases of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities? When are they going to taper, taper, taper? So the Fed historically has never bought these securities. So at some point, they will slow down and or stop. And I don't think the markets should should be reacting now necessarily to something that's going to happen in 2022. It's almost as if people sometimes don't have anything else to talk about. So it's like, Rob, you know, when's the Fed going to taper? Well, let's talk about something that's going to happen in the next few weeks or months rather than something that might happen in 2022. The Federal Reserve, I think, uh, will keep that policy in place for as long as it sees the need. The, uh, uh, of course, they were buying too many mortgage-backed securities and treasuries last year uh, toward the end of March. And of course, MBS prices shot up. Our, uh, the TMC members and every other lender who had security positions in place got caught by short squeezes, meaning that if they sold something here, and they went up to here the to buy that back because that's how hedges work. To buy that back is going to require a lot of money. So the investment banks 
had margin calls, which made them buy back or in effect put up cash for part of that position. The Federal Reserve quickly uh, changed that. They scaled things back. And now the big question is, when are they going to taper? And I, I think that they'll taper when they're when they're good and ready, damn it. Uh, and, uh, and Jay Powell, I think, doesn't necessarily need to talk about that. I know a lot of Fed presidents have been on the on the speaking circuit talking about tapering and so forth, but I don't think anybody on this call or anybody in the economic community will be surprised when they eventually do, because it is a discussion topic. And the fact that Jay Powell, I mean, the fact that we're not ready to do it yet tells us something, that we're not quite out of the woods yet in terms of uh, what the Fed thinks. So other than that, nothing really, nothing really surprising. I, I, I think the what we don't want to have happen, Rich, is for the federal, for, for Jay Powell to surprise us with anything, really. He's he the Fed is there as a stabilizing impact, not a, oh, and by the way, we're gonna start doing this next week, kind of, kind of uh, you know, body. So the fact that there weren't any big surprises, the fact that he uh, reassured markets uh, that steady as she goes, I think is actually a good thing. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, the stock and bond markets kind of rallied off the news. Uh, stocks, you know, fearful of the impact of, of tapering too soon on equities and bonds for the obvious reasons. But um, yeah, it's it, it just, and it seems to me like interest rates are never going to go above three and a half percent. Like we've been talking about it for a decade you have geopolitical stuff going on in Afghanistan right now. It just seems like, you know, every time you move, you know, the cup with the ball underneath it over to, a, you know, another part of the table, something else comes up and that uh, it just feels like we're going to be in this low interest rate cycle for a long time. Um, but and we have been so uh, it's good for our industry. But, uh, you know, it uh, a lot of criticism uh, you know i think paul is getting i think more uh pointed questions and i've seen a fed president get uh you know after these statements and then in the news afterwards uh you know i think by the inflation hawks right now and the people that can't understand you know why they continue to buy mortgage bonds as part of their uh you know interest rate strategy but um my opinion sounds like yours. He's kind of doing the right thing. He's an experienced guy. Seems like he's going to get re-upped. Uh, he just got the uh, the uh, seal of approval from Janet Yellen. So especially Biden with everything he has going on right now, not, you know, in a position, right, to go against his Treasury secretary to uh, uh, for a largely popular Fed, Fed, Fed president. So, yeah, I will I will say that what tends to happen is. Uh, the markets, whether they're the stock markets or whether the bond markets, they don't like surprises. They like certainty. And when a, uh, I'm often asked, not that I'm a stock analyst or anything, but you know, IBM. If I'm, I'm just picking IBM, somebody, if the market, if the, all the analysts think they're going to earn ten dollars a share, and they earn ten dollars a share. The stock might not budge. If they earn eight, that's still a lot per share. But the fact that it was below expectations, usually the stock will sell off. If they earn 12, you know, the stock rallies. With 
the MBS and mortgage-backed security market, there's so many moving pieces out there with regard to private label securities, with regard to conservatorship or not conservatorship, with regard to affordable housing goals, so forth and so on. It's a very complicated mechanism out there. And so I think, as I said earlier, the Fed out there, you know, being a stabilizing impact or stabilizing influence on the markets, at least just that agency piece, I think reassures reassures people. So we can, you know, our, our TMC's lender members can continue just to, to motor on and not worry about hopefully, you know, huge fluctuations in interest rate, which don't do anybody any good and continue originating loans. Uh, moving on to other topics, um, you know, you made a, it wasn't even really a joke. It was a comment in your commentary, just about affordable housing. It has just been, you know, these shows that we do, uh, the mortgage news headlines, just in general, it has been the term you've heard more than any, especially, uh, you know, since the change in presidential administrations. And, you know, I think the comment in your commentary was along the lines of, I'm like sick of hearing about affordable housing. And I don't think it was like not somebody saying that because it's not an important issue in America. But I, I think the crossroads that we're coming to here is you have a presidential administration that is going to, uh, I think, continue to uh, drive policy uh, to level the playing field, to help first time home buyers, to help low to moderate income borrowers, borrowers that are minority ethnicities. Um, but we don't have any affordable housing stock for them to buy, regardless of what you do with the policies. Uh, the past week, there's been a few different columns that have been written, policies that have been proposed. Um, you know, kind of aimed at fixing this problem. Wall Street Journal came out with a piece. Uh, I posted it to LinkedIn a few days ago. I thought it was a pretty smart proposal, you know, basically centered around um, uh, elimination of some of the benefits of the homestead exemption. If uh, corporations or private buyers are scooping up affordable housing, because that's what ha what's happening. We already have a dearth of affordable housing stock in America. Um, and, and like good capitalists, you have you know, companies, private companies that are coming out and gobbling up affordable housing, knowing there's a dearth of it, <laughs> looking either to rent it or resell it, uh, just adding to the problem. Um, your thoughts on the matter? You were just, what was the talk about this at Western? So I, uh, after the, after our show is done, I'll look up the definition of dearth. The, uh, uh, when you look at the statistics of, of housing and the, you know, if you look at the number, for example, of, of homes below $200,000 that were sold, uh, you know, 20 years ago versus the number of, of homes that are even for sale now under 200,000 now, I mean, it's, it's dropped dramatically. And so when you talk about affordable housing, once again, it's important for people to remember why we're in this bucket. Why, why does the Biden administration even care? And the fact of the matter is, there are huge home ownership gaps with between you, know, you or me and you know, people of color or women, whatever it might be. These huge home ownership gaps, I think, are what one of the things that the Biden administration is trying to uh, narrow. And along those lines, when you talk about affordable housing, first-time home buyers, there's 
it's not, once again, the, the issue is very, very complicated. Are you, are you just talking about minorities? Are you talking about, uh, uh, you know, people who uh, may not have a job? Should they own a home? Are you talking about affordable housing in terms of you should make the counties and cities lessen the cost to get a housing, you know, a building permit? How long does it take to get a building permit? How long does it take to get a sink or a faucet? or a washing machine to put in that brand new home. Where are builders' profit margins the best? Because frankly, you can't necessarily make builders do something. They, had, they need to be financially incentivized to want to build, quote, affordable housings that appeal to a certain income group in that community. You have you know, the not in my backyard contingent. I don't want, you know, I live in this nice area and I don't want affordable housing going in next door. You know, we don't need that. So it's very much a uh, stick and carrot kind of scenario where it's, it's important for housing groups, it's important for TMC and TMC's members to, to make their voice known with, you know, Congress, with regulators and so forth, and with at the local city and county level, because really how are you incenting builders to build those houses. And I think that's what one of the conversations to- topic, of, uh, one of the conversation topics of the Western Secondary was, we hear all this stuff about affordable housing, but the government can't make us do some, something or the government can't make cities and counties do something or they, they can't, the government can't make builders do something or they can't make lumber mills charge a certain price for their lumber, but they can incentivize, incentivize uh, or they can incent different groups to do different things. And there's a lot of moving pieces with affordable housing, and it's nice to talk about, but it kind of comes down to a lot of lenders are going to, are taking a wait and see approach to affordable housing. They've, they've seen the t- statistics, the loan officers out there know that there's not a lot of affordable housing to be had and not a lot of inexpensive housing to be had. On the other hand, you know, we've got cheap money, you point out the, the low interest rates that are present right now. I tend to agree those are going to be with us for a while, maybe even, maybe even a little bit lower, who knows. But business is good. And until some, you know, until this these things start to fall in place more, I think a lot of lenders are just saying, okay, well, let us know what we what we need to do, what we what we should be doing. Let you know, incent us on perhaps passing passing price breaks for low. Uh, low loan amount loans uh, through to borrowers and so forth and so on. So, like I say, a lot of moving pieces. Were the, but but most of the lenders I talked to about it recently are, are kind of taking a wait and see approach and and uh, you know saying we're here when you need us or here we're here when you want us. But uh, until we see more movement uh, with the government or with you know cities and counties and so forth. Uh, there's not much individual lenders can do. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue we've been talking about, you know, on, on these shows for well over a year, and just in general for years. It, it's it, to me, it's like two separate. It's separate from, you know, President Biden um, and you know Secretary Fudge wanting to make uh, home ownership more attainable for certain groups that you know have not had the levels of home ownership um, that other groups have. It's, it's almost separate from that, but it's connected. It's just in general, there is just a lack of 
homes that, you know, the single mom or the couple just out of college that doesn't have the job they want yet can buy. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse every year. And it's getting worse and worse and worse now because it's such an exposed and public problem that corporations and companies are coming in and buying these properties. And, you know, for, and it's not a dumb move. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, no. it's, no, it's smart. <clears throat> when, it's almost a collision between the government and private capital, you know, because if you're Blackstone and, you know, houses come on the market, especially starter homes in that area, not so much affordable housing that require, you know, 80% of the median income or whatever it might be, but uh, you have the Blackstones of the world coming in saying, oh, here's a, here's a house in a decent neighborhood and we can buy it for 200000 or 250000 And we're going to use Blackstone's cost of funds, which is certainly going to be less than the typical mortgage that's out there now. And they've got, or they just buy it with cash. And so you have this collision with these large companies who have done very well, by the way. I don't know what vacancy rates are like for the Blackstone or Colonial portfolios, but I imagine they're relatively low. And so they've they've hit a financial home run for their stockholders or or asset holders by buying up swaths of you know tens of thousands of homes uh, across the nation. Now there are some people out there who say relative to the overall housing stock, these large companies don't own that many, but I would argue that their impact is still being felt. And they've done very well with them and they will continue to buy them, whether it, probably not on the pace that they were back in 2010 or 11 or 12, but they're still out there buying them because the rents are good. They can make money. They're appreciating. So it's, a, uh, it's not an overwhelming thing, but many families, when they're going out to buy that $250,000 house in the suburbs of you know, Las Vegas or, or Cleveland, they're, they're going to be competing with uh, potentially a huge company that's out there with deep pockets. So it's just, it's once again, it's, it complicates, it muddies the water when you talk about uh, housing stock in the United States. And on top of that, builders haven't been building starter homes for, for you know, for the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, they, they, I wouldn't say 15, the last 10 years, it hasn't been in their financial interest necessarily to build a lot of quote, starter homes. And so there's this talking about a dearth. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a shortage out there and it's going to take a while to catch up if we ever do. Yeah. I'm not trying to toot my own. I remember talking about this on LinkedIn a couple of years ago. Like if something is not done, it's going to be a very, it's going to be a very bad problem in a year or two. And I think that's what we've seen materialize. And it's a two pronged problem. Like how do we fix the problem in the near to short term? And then what do we do to incent builders to build lower priced homes? So it, it, you know, helps solve the problem in the long term. And, you know, there's a lot of good comments in the chat and the Q&A about different ideas, uh, changing the capital gains requirements. And as the Wall Street Journal suggested, making uh, some tweaks to the homestead exemption. Uh, we, we talked here on this show five or six months ago about, you know, ideas around, uh, you know, people that non-corporations, individuals that own homes, if they sell them investment properties, um, to be shielded or reduced capital gains taxes on those properties. 
And, but it's just crazy. Like the community I live in, in Ohio, you can get a real nice house for three, $400,000. The houses in like the 150 to like 225 range. I was just a really good friend of mine as a realtor locally. Um, she said, it's, it's just insane. Like it's, they're, they're, it's like two different markets, you know, the luxury or nicer homes, which is really starting to normalize. And you see this in some of the statistics that are coming out now uh, with regards to, you know, list prices coming down and sale prices stabilizing, but in the lower levels, it still is, uh, you know, it's, it's just incredibly competitive and tough. And that's not even mentioning the iBuyers, the Open Doors, the Zillows, Keller Williams is going to start iBuying now. So on top of corporations, private equity firms that are out there gobbling up properties, you've got these new entities, these iBuyers coming in. And for the same reasons that they're doing it for, you know, we've sat here and talked on the show about why home values are not going to you know, these, these people that are waiting for this mythical crash of the market so they could, home values aren't going to go down. Why would home values go down? What? Yeah. None, uh, there's you, no, right. <laughs> if you're, if you're a, if you're a young family and you've been waiting for, for months to buy a house and finally you find something for $200,000 in, in a decent school district, and you've got a couple of kids. The last thing you want to do is move. You could be in that house for years. And so Unless there's new housing stock coming in at that price level in that area, there's not going to be anything. There's not. There's no reason for people who have those houses to move necessarily. Not not for a while at least. So yeah, it's it's a it's a big bottleneck out there. And lenders, like I say, in terms of the vendors who are on this call and the lenders who are on this call, I think it's kind of like they're gonna they're gonna react to whatever happened and. Rates aren't the question. The question is, how do we get, how do we find the adequate programs for buyers who can help help these new families or first-time home buyers get into the home, whether it's FHA or whether it's a down payment assistance program? The lenders that I've spoken to, they're saying, yeah, inventory is an issue. To your point, it is starting to loosen up a little bit, but do we have the programs in place when somebody comes in who uh, who hasn't owned a home? Maybe they're Hispanic or Asian, maybe they don't have a, a, a you know much of a credit history. Um, you know, looking you know, so Fannie Mae, great. Let's look at rental income. Uh, you can look at uh, you know if you're underwriting loans, you can look at other aspects of that credit profile. So so do does do I as a lender as as an MLO or a broker, am I do do my wholesalers have the programs that I need in order to help that client as a loan officer does my company have the programs to help that borrower who might come in and might want to use you know utility bill receipts to show that they can make payments so it's all it's all fascinating it's all interesting we're once again the lender members are out there just to help borrowers and the vendors on this call are just there to help help their lender uh, lender clients and so here we are yeah, good, uh, you know, good comment in the chat from Tom Lamafa. If the administration extends new affordable housing programs today, the price of entry-level housing will rise further. The marginal borrower sets the price. Prices only decline when demand drops or supply increases more to that demand. And I really, I applaud the Biden administration and Secretary Fudge for, you know, really being, we, we, we talked about housing never coming up in the national debate. They have really taken an aggressive stance with housing and the housing industry, but 
it seems like they're almost kind of working backwards. And it's obvious to see why, um, you know, it's much more politically popular to talk about, you know, expanding goals for low income and minority housing than it is tax breaks for people that sell homes that they own. Um, But that's not as, you know, popular to talk about, but it just feels like we're going in the wrong order here. So, you know, Rich, I mean, is this maybe as we close up the show, I don't know, let's see what time it is. I think we're almost out of time, but let's not forget the Sravinsky plan. You know, that was that that balloon was floated last year, as I recall. Your, your idea. National traction. I know. I was so surprising. You, you want to tell the audience the bare bones of that proposal? I mean, it was it was far from an in-depth proposal. I mean, it was really, really just centered around, you know, individuals that own investment properties, um, you know, t- capital gains tax breaks or eliminations uh, for selling those homes for, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, take advantage and cash in on the appreciation of those homes and more so and be incented to do so more so by not having to pay the capital gains tax on the difference between what you paid for it and what you're selling it for. Um, It would, in theory, you know, those investment properties are mostly affordable housing, uh, would put more stock uh, out there in the marketplace. And uh, it seems like an easy fix. But again, it's not popular to talk about tax breaks of any type. Um, and, you know, and, and there's always the other side to the coin as well. The Wall Street Journal piece that I referenced, you know, they talked about that. And it's worth it's worth Googling and reading, yeah. um, you know, I the would political, say- the the fight back that they would get on something like that. Yeah, I, I know that we have a lot of industry vets on this call. Cindy Leonard, for example, in Colorado is on this call. I think the the those people with that kind of intellectual capital and just experience capital when and and you you know this proposal, I mean you kind of you kind of grinned when I brought it up, but but things like that have merit and and a lot of people in the industry like Cindy Leonard have have good ideas about what might work and what can work. And, um, you know, I think, I think those hopefully will percolate up, um, you know, beyond this phone call. Well, we're almost out of time. Any other uh, Western secondary hot button stuff that uh, you didn't put in the newsletter that we were saving for this show or uh, where, where are you? We didn't, we didn't get through that cause I was late. Are you actually, you're not home, are you? Uh, I am in San Rafael, California, just north of San Francisco. That's close to home. Well, one could argue this is a home. Uh, I'm going to, uh, the, uh, um, I had to get out of the smoke, the Reno, Reno smoke, the, the trucky smoke. It's really very bad up there. And so, uh, here with the coastal influence, you don't have, you don't have the smoke and it's, uh, it's a good what, place. What but the, California, how come they can't stop the forest from catching on fire? It seems like that's something you should be able to figure out. No, it's a uh, that that's is really a political environmental discussion about, in, in you know, the the uh, when I mean, I'm 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 not a pure environmentalist. You know, I, I use natural resources and drink out of an aluminum can, all that stuff. But really, the the fuel that is built up over the, the decades for. Um, uh, in the forests, uh, not only in California, but all over the West, the, the forests, I mean, you don't necessarily have to rake them because that would be, uh, 
nearly impossible, but there's so much underbrush that uh, because people are afraid to touch the forest and destroy the natural habitat, but it really is a tinderbox and you combine that with a drought. It's a, it's a very, very tough situation for, for California to be going through, but getting back to the Western secondary, you know, b- before you got on 10 or 15 minutes late, uh, the, uh, uh, Amy and I were talking about the general mood, which was very, very good. People, once again, genuinely happy to see one another. And the, the discussion topics, nothing big, nothing sweeping, but what the, the consensus seemed to be was a focus on compliance and regulation and making sure that the compliance department was, was well-staffed. And uh, with regard to the secondary markets and the capital markets, you know, it's this, it's this big web. FHA, VA, the bond program, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. We've stopped talking about getting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac out of conservatorship. But as they move forward in their current state, it's important for for folks on the call to know where they make their money. And are they subsidizing one program with another program? So, you know, there's a lot of attention on second homes and non-owner occupied loans and caps and so forth and percentages. And you know, some of those, the, the risk on those programs, the risk premium, the pricing, the G fee, whatever it might be that isn't being used is actually being used to subsidize other programs, kind of like an insurance company, you know, I, uh, uh, insurance money, insurance company money that is received by that insurance company from someplace like Ohio is perhaps used to subsidize you know, California with, with its fires and, and with potential earthquakes. So, You have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac who are receiving money from the pricing in one component and using that to subsidize pricing somewhere else. And so when you talk about changes to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it's good to keep those things in mind. So that that was basically it. It was was a good conference. Like I said, people are in a good mood. Uh, The the disastrous interest rate rises or plummeting uh, margins or plummeting volumes hasn't happened. Originators and lenders are still having a great year, still having a great third quarter. So we, we continue on. Yeah, the compliance pendulum. It's like, you know, it's like compliance crazy, no compliance. Like, I mean, you know, just can't we stay in the middle where we should be? It's really right. in the me. Like, crazy. Um, well, uh, any uh, forward depart, any, any good plans this weekend? I'm off to have lunch with a buddy. Uh, I'm going to play some basketball tomorrow morning and then tomorrow afternoon, I actually go to a uh, friend's house for a, uh, a little concert he's having in his backyard. So I'm looking forward to that. Great. What about you? Uh, high school football game tonight and uh, tomorrow having some family over and Sunday having like 40 guys over for this massive high stakes fantasy football auction. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm ready for it. So very good. Yeah. Good. Excellent. Thanks for having me on, Rich. As always, and uh, enjoy the week off next week. And uh, thank you to all of our attendees for joining us once again uh, outside of next Friday. We're here every Friday at 3 p.m. with the rundown with Rob and Rich. And until then, have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. For more information about how you can get involved with TMC Connect and witness the power of the network firsthand, please visit us at mortgagecollaborative.com.